why are less than college-educated whites in the U.S. so much less resilient, less happy, angry, frustrated, desperate than, say, poor minorities? This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 49 of Parsing Science, we're joined by Carol Graham from the Brookings Institution and the University of Maryland. She'll talk with us about her research into why younger, out-of-work men in the United States are so unhappy, especially compared with other places in the world where their counterparts are arguably struggling much more. Here's Carol Graham. Hello, I'm Carol Graham. I started my career by accident right out of Princeton as a research assistant at Brookings and loved the place and realized that I wanted to be a Brookings scholar at that point, but that I I didn't want to do somebody else's research. And so I went on and did a PhD in Oxford and I came back on a dissertation fellowship and sat at Brookings again. And then I came back on a MacArthur writing fellowship after teaching for a year and then, um, you know, did a couple other things and then came back as a senior fellow. My own work focuses in two areas. One is the welfare effects of macro and institutional arrangements that individuals can't change. So think about bad governance or you're a poor peasant in Bolivia who's made unhappy by inequality. Well, how do you reveal a preference, right? So how do institutional arrangements affect individual welfare? And, you know, we can assess that. The other area I'm particularly interested in is behaviors that are not driven by optimal choices, but instead by norms, addiction, or self-control problems. You know, somebody in a lower caste in India who doesn't send their kid to school. I mean, is that really a revealed preference or is it a lack of choice because of a very strong discriminatory norm? But we can observe the welfare effects of that lack of choice. Um, And then things like why are smokers less happier than non-smokers? You know, if it was a revealed preference in the standard method, they should be happier, but they're not. Why are obese people less happy than non-obese people? This isn't, you know, optimizing consumption. There's something else going on. Whereas most economists have traditionally focused on income, Carol was one of the first to investigate happiness and has done extensive work on patterns of its determinants across countries and time. She's also been a leader in exploring the properties of well-being and showed, for example, that people with greater well-being tend to do better in the labor market and health arenas, a pattern she identified as early as 2004. So Doug and I wanted to learn more about what led her to pursue this particular line of research. I was born in Peru and I was always very interested in poverty and inequality and development issues. The first part of my career, I tromped around the world looking at safety nets during market transitions and have been in probably more slums in weird places than most people. Africa, Eastern Europe, East Asia, a lot of Latin America, obviously. And I was thinking about basically social mobility as part of the inequality puzzle and why inequality matters to people and why it doesn't. And working in Peru at a time when there were a lot of protests against the World Bank, and people saying that globalization was bad for the poor and poor countries. And I was in Peru going, they're growing 14% and people are coming out of poverty in record numbers. So what's the disconnect here? I had data on these people over a 10 year period and I could tell who had come out of poverty, how much their income gains had been, a lot of detail over time with several observations. So I thought, I wonder how these people think they've done. How do they report their welfare? I wasn't using the term happiness then, or their well-being. It wasn't using that term either. And we went back and interviewed people in this 
panel data set and found that over half of the people who had done the best, so, you know, they'd started off pretty poor or below the poverty line, but had made the biggest income gains. Over half of them said they were worse off than they were before. And that seemed a little odd. And we thought maybe it was the day of the survey. Maybe Chile had beaten Peru in soccer um, and everybody's in a bad mood. We repeated it. We kept getting these results. And then poor rural people who had no income change said they were the same or better. So I called these people my happy peasants and frustrated achievers, kind of glibly at the time. But then I kept getting this pattern with other data, data from Russia, data from China. And I was trying to understand it. And a wonderful thing about Brookings is the great collection of scholars there who didn't feel threatened by these findings. So basically, it's upended the idea that it's all about income. We've long known that the pursuit of happiness is an important determinant of human behavior. In 1902, the American philosopher and psychologist William James wrote, How to gain, how to keep, and how to recover happiness is, in fact, for most men, at all times, the secret motive for all they do. Here's what Carol had to say about how the measurement of well-being has enabled the exploration of many other questions within the field of economics. Sort of the determinants of happiness or well-being were pretty much the same across individuals, across countries, and over time. And then that allowed us to start exploring other questions, right? If you could control for these standard things that seem to be pretty constant across all people, then you could look at the well-being effects of things that vary. And that could be, you know, any number of things. How does, you know, smoking, exercising, bad governance, you know, inequality, all sorts of things where your standard economics assumptions that, you know, everybody's a rational actor and you observe their consumption choices and that's a proxy for their welfare. But there's so many situations in human life where your consumption choice is either flawed because people make bad choices or they try and keep up with the Joneses or where people don't have the agency to express a preference. And so we were able to open up the inquiry into a whole set of questions and issues that revealed preferences don't provide a good answer to. And then that wraps back around to my finding very low levels of well-being among poor whites in the United States. So I've spent my last two years working on something I never thought I'd be working on, which is why are less than college-educated whites in the U.S., so much less resilient, less happy, angry, frustrated, desperate than, say, poor minorities. While it's a motivator of behavior, well-being is a multidimensional and subjective state defined by the individual, often in comparison to the real or perceived well-being of others. We asked Carol to describe the main ways in which she and other researchers define well-being. So the first one is what we call hedonic or experience well-being, and that is how you experience your daily life, or you stressed or angry, content or smiling as you went through your day's activities. And that's a measure of kind of daily quality of life. It doesn't correlate as strongly with income as the other measures, because in the end, if you're destitute, it's bad for everything, including your moods. But you know, after a certain amount of money, more money won't make you enjoy your commute more. You know, sitting in traffic an hour and a half, whether you love your car or not, it's still sitting in traffic. Enough money to meet basic needs, depending on the context you're in, matters to moods and daily experience. But after that, not so much. But the second dimension, which is what we call evaluative well-being, or how satisfied are you with your life, that's a metric that assesses how people assess 
their lives as a whole. And that's a life course measure. So if you're young and you answer that question, you're thinking not only about today, but your opportunities and what you want to do with your life. If you're old, you tend to reflect upon, again, your life as a whole and what you were able to do. And that measure correlates more with income because people with means have the ability to choose what they want to do in their lives, right? They have more of a chance to choose to be professors or artists or, you know, doctors. People without means have much less ability to choose the kinds of jobs and lives they want to have. And the last measure is is related, and that's having meaning or purpose in life. And we call that eudaimonic well-being, which comes from Aristotle's concept of happiness, which was a combination of you, meaning abundance, and daemon, meaning control over your life or over your fate. We find that tracks pretty closely with the life satisfaction measures. They're not all that different with a couple of nuances and also differences depending more where you live. You know, you can think about that in the sense that the U.S. uh, values material success more than other societies. You'd find that what people define as meaning or purpose might be different in different contexts. But there are nuanced differences. They're not that they're not that great. That's also the measure we know least about. I think it may be the most important one, but we're you know, just starting to work with it with large-scale surveys. Carol analyzed data from multiple waves of the Gallup World Poll, a cross-sectional, nationally representative survey collected each year across more than 150 countries. From 2010 to 2017, Carol was particularly interested in the subgroup that self-identified as being out of the labor force, the group of people that just about any White House administration doesn't like to talk about, people who aren't working, but also aren't officially counted as unemployed. Ryan and I asked Carol to tell us more about what it means to be out of the labor force. Everybody talks about the U.S. having record low numbers of unemployment, and yet 15 to 20 percent of prime-age males are out of the labor force. And so what out of the labor force means is that you have stopped looking for a job. So people qualify as unemployed if they report to have been looking for a job in the past six months. If they stop doing that, they drop out of the numerator of the employment rate calculation. So that means the unemployment rate looks lower if you don't account for the people who have simply dropped out of looking for a job dropped out of the labor market and have given up. But have they given up forever? It's hard to say. A lot of the out of the labor force males in the U.S. have given up. Um, A lot of them are on disability insurance. They're overrepresented in opioids category. They're overrepresented in deaths of despair. So a lot of them can't get jobs anymore, but others have just dropped out and are frustrated. And in our paper, we use the Gallup World Poll so that we can compare the group in the U.S. with that same group of out-of-labor force in other regions. The issue with out-of-labor force in other regions, like, say, the Middle East or Latin America, as we note in the papers, they may be in the informal sector doing all kinds of things, but they're not in the formal labor force. Um, in Europe, they're, they're much more likely to just be out of the labor force, as in the U.S. But we also used the Gallup daily data, which is a much larger data set for the United States with about 500 to 1,000 people a day since 2008. And that gives us a much larger sample of out-of-labor force men in the United States. So I don't know if you noticed, but the, the confidence intervals on our main charts are larger for the U.S. when we use the Gallup World 
poll data because the U.S. is just counted as one country in the Gallup World Poll. But we replicated our findings with a much larger sample in the Gallup Daily Poll, and we get essentially the same findings. The economic and emotional toll of being out of the workforce don't seem to be experienced the same way among people within the United States as they are among those who live in other countries. Carroll's research compared the data for males 25 to 54 years of age who are out of the labor force in four specific regions or countries the United States, the European Union, the Middle East and North Africa, which economists refer to by the acronym MENA, and Latin American countries. We asked Carol to explain what she learned through these comparisons. We compared within regions, and let's just use the U.S. as this data point to start with. So that means we compare how the, the well-being levels of prime age males out of the labor force to the well-being levels of other people in different employment categories in the U.S., so to the unemployed, to the part-time employed, to females out of the labor force, to, you know, full-time employed. And we found that in the U.S., they are typically on almost every marker, they're much less satisfied with their lives, they're more angry, they're more frustrated, they're less optimistic than most other employment categories on almost every indicator one or two maybe more nuance between the unemployed and the out of the labor force people, but pretty much they score the worst. And we are controlling for age, education, gender, all these things, and then we compare all the employment categories to each other within the U.S. But when we compare across regions, what we're doing is we are just looking at this group of prime age males out of the labor force aged 25 to 54 in the U.S., in the Middle East and North Africa, Latin America, and Europe. And then we compare simply how do prime age males out of the labor force compare with each other across these regions. Again, the U.S. doesn't look great, U.S. prime age males. If you look at absolute levels of life satisfaction and other markers of well-being are very low in the Middle East and North Africa. So on some of the charts, you'll see prime age males out of the labor force about the level or even a, a little bit above prime age males out of the labor force in the Middle East. But on many others, they're below prime age males in the Middle East. And that, that for us was pretty remarkable. It made us think a lot about, one, the stigma of being out of the labor force in the United States, but also the greater acceptability and kind of norm of being an informal sector worker in places like the Middle East and Latin America. You know, some informal sector jobs are good. Informal labor is much more the norm, and some informal sector workers in developing markets like Latin America and the Middle East, particularly Latin America, are very entrepreneurial, and they, they're often more satisfied with their jobs than, say, being in a, a lousy formal sector job with a terrible boss, right? You know, they have flexibility, they're entrepreneurial. Not so in the U.S. If you look at self-employed workers in the U.S., granted, they're, they're sort of big tails on that distribution, so you have some very wealthy, successful ones, but most self-employed workers in the U.S. are self-employed due to lack of better alternatives. And they're, you know, they're like driving the market trucks on the mall in D.C., or they're driving Uber or, or whatever it might be. And so even though we separate self-employed, when you look at the developing markets, the labor categories merge much more. And people who, who are reporting to be out of the labor force may actually be informal sector workers 
versus in the U.S., people who report to be out of the labor force are really out of the labor force. Those who work for cash and underreport their taxable earnings comprise the informal sector, and such unregulated economic activity is a substantial part of many of the world's economies. Those working in the informal economy, however, don't typically have unemployment and disability benefits, nor is their work protected by minimum wage and labor laws. Ryan and I wondered what, if any role, the informal sector may play in the relationship between labor force participation and well-being. Whether you like it or not, we're moving towards a economy where the gig economy is increasingly big piece of the puzzle. AI is is displacing a lot of low-skilled jobs. You know, and labor markets are evolving in a way that I don't think we can fully predict. And it may be that these slightly less developed economies with large informal sectors are more flexible and may find that transition easier than, you know, the more developed economies with very structured formal sector labor markets and benefit systems linked to jobs and all kinds of things. And that that model is going to have a harder time, at least at the low scale end of the model, transitioning into high tech, gig, all these things that are starting to dominate the way labor markets work. I don't know the answer to that, but that's that's a hypothesis I had in the paper just based on the well-being levels of people in the informal sector in these markets compared to the well-being levels of primary workers out of the labor force in the U.S. And I don't emphasize that much in this paper, but in other work, more precursors to this, is why are poor minorities so much more resilient and optimistic than poor whites in the current context in the U.S.? And I think that has to do with a history of having to multitask and do all kinds of jobs. So not having the steady blue-collar job doesn't mean you lose your identity versus for blue-collar white males, it, it does. There are available jobs in places where manufacturing has deteriorated or the coal mines have shut. There are jobs in the health sector, and male minority workers will take them, but white males won't. You know, their identity was the manufacturing job or the coal mining job. They're not represented in those new sectors or those growing sectors. And I think it does have to do with the kind of classic American dream, which was, you know, graduated high school, you got a stable job in the manufacturing sector, the coal mining sector, and you could have, you know, kind of a approximate middle class life. It wasn't luxurious, you worked hard, but you had the stable job and the stable family, and both those things have gone away. And it seems that it's the white blue collar worker that's had the hardest time sort of switching out of that identity. Carol's research testifies to the fact that many white prime working age males in the United States struggle in today's economy. Next, Carol discusses why it seems that men in this demographic are so much less optimistic and more discontent than their counterparts in Latin America and MENA. None of the Latin American findings surprise me because Latin Americans, they always score higher on optimism, happiness, and experience well-being than their income levels would predict. There's a cultural component to that. There's a quality of life component to that. There's a family ties component to that. There are all kinds of sort of things you can't measure explicitly that seem to matter a lot to Latin Americans' high levels of well-being. So, you know, it didn't surprise me that out of the labor force or informal sector workers would also be happier and more optimistic. 
But with MENA, you know, you've got this narrative of, oh, all the budding terrorists in the Middle East are these unemployed, young and middle-aged guys out of the labor force, right? That's the standard narrative that we hear over and over again. And then you look at their well-being levels, and they seem perfectly fine, you know, at least compared within their own region to their counterparts, they're more content and more optimistic than the unemployed and the formally employed in the Middle East, which is a very small group of the group that has formal sector jobs, right? So I think that has to do with this kind of informal sector multitasking kind of existence that's quite usual for developing and middle income economies, no stigma surrounding it. And we're trying to understand that a little better, again, pushing forward with this research. And so in the U.S., you've got this narrative, or not a narrative, but a reality where white blue collar workers had stable jobs and they kind of did what their dads did and they had a, a respected existence and they lived a stable lower middle class life. And the opportunity to do that is gone, right? If you graduate from high school only now, your opportunities are very, very limited and marriage rates have gone down. So now all of a sudden you have the markers of kind of the respected white blue collar workers life are gone and they're, they don't have a narrative to replace it. And it turns out that minorities, Hispanics and blacks, who've always had to multitask and deal with discrimination, they're more resilient. In 2017, Carol and her colleagues created a report for Brookings called The Geography of Desperation in America, which suggested that those that don't believe in their futures are much less likely to invest in education, health, and job training, all of which increase the likelihood of America becoming even more unequal in the future. The Gallup polling data used in the study allowed for the United States to be disaggregated by state and other socio-demographic and economic trends. This ability led to various insights, which Carol shares after this short break. If you enjoy parsing science, you may also like our new project, Science Pods. Science Pods is a curated collection of episodes from other podcasts that we handpick for people who are interested in science. Whether you're a graduate student, professional researcher, or science nerd, you can explore new science shows and easily find episodes that will inform your research, guide your career development, or maybe make you laugh at the absurdities of scientific life. You can subscribe at sciencepods.com. That's science, P-O-D-S, dot com. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here again is Carol Graham. One issue that's very tricky because of the different aggregation levels of the data, but sort of how does place matter? So the places where minorities were most optimistic or least optimistic and where poor whites were most optimistic and least optimistic. Controlling for everything else, education, employment rates, rural, urban, all sorts of things. And we got some really interesting findings there. For example, again, this is controlling for all sorts of objective indicators like health and employment rates and everything else that the places where minorities were most optimistic were the southeastern cluster of states, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana. So that seems absurd. They're objectively full of discrimination, awful indicators of poverty, but there's an agglomeration of African-American culture, music, churches. Those unobservable things matter a lot to people's optimism and well-being and sense of identity. The other very optimistic 
part of the country for minorities was the southwestern cluster of states where there's a concentration of immigrants from Latin America and Hispanic culture and food and language. And then whites tended to be more optimistic in the same places that are desperate, but they're more homogeneously white, or at least blue-collar whites did. Since at least the early days of the Industrial Revolution, change has been an economic constant. But are the economic changes we're witnessing today a different kind of change? And are we now more uncertain of the future than people were a hundred years ago? We asked Carol to offer her thoughts on what can help people adapt to a changing economy. The work I've done on adaptation, how people can adapt to a lot of things and maintain their well-being, so things you think would be terrible like a a physical injury that limits your mobility or constant crime and corruption in places like where I grew up. It's improved a lot, but you know, it used to be in Peru, you paid the cop a bribe or the customs guy and it didn't bother you because everybody did it and it wasn't there was no fear, there was no uncertainty about it. That's how it was. So I found that people can adapt to unpleasant certainty and retain their well-being. And that could be bad governance. It could be lots of crime and corruption, petty crime, not violent crime. And it turns out that things that involve change and uncertainty, which could be a reduction in crime and corruption from a new regime, but it's chaotic for a while, or improvements in governance that also shake things up, or it could be a whole range of things that may in the end make things better, but the change, people have fear of change and uncertainty, and that tends to be bad for their well-being. So that sort of fits with that, that, that sort of fear of the unknown. And if you look at this sounds a little orthogonal, but it's not because it goes back to this political question. If you look at negative attitudes about migrants in the U.S., it turns out that people who actually know a migrant are much less likely to be negative about migrants because, hey, they're a normal person just like me. But you can look at both the Trump vote and the Brexit vote in Britain, the places that tended to vote for Trump and Brexit, often on the basis of you know anti-immigrant, have the least immigrants. They just have a few immigrants. They're these, oh, these people are creeping in. We don't know them. They're scary. Versus places that are more diverse and have more migrants are much less likely to be anti-migrant. In episode 25 of Parsing Science, we spoke with Sherry Moss about how people form work identities in changing economic landscapes. During that conversation, it became apparent to Ryan and I that work identities can be transient, tied to economic conditions beyond any individual's control, and thus not the best foundation for building our personal identities. Reflecting on Carol's research, we asked her if, especially in the United States, she thinks we place too much emphasis on our jobs. You know, I've lived in places where markets didn't work and economies didn't work and you had hyperinflation and terrible poverty and the poor get hit the worst. So I I don't think you can just toss out the baby with the bathwater and say you don't need economic growth and you don't need markets and all these things. But that said, I mean, we're clearly moving into a, I think, tectonic shift in the nature of work, and in particular, the future of low-skilled labor because of the challenges from AI, the challenges from technology-driven growth. And even in the high-skilled sectors, you're moving to just different work arrangements where people value the quality of jobs as much as the jobs, and where, you know, when people reach a certain amount of income, quality of life matters a lot. And so we know from all the work on well-being around the world that freedom matters a tremendous amount. Having purpose in life matters more than income. Good health matters. And so I think 
when we think about what's going to happen at the low skill end of the market, where right now you have people working long hours, unpredictable jobs, terrible quality jobs, not a whole lot of creativity and learning in those jobs, the other dimensions of life need to be emphasized and matter a lot. And we, we learn a lot from some ongoing efforts we have that I'm involved in. Like there's a, an organization in the UK called What Works Wellbeing. They implement low-cost interventions that enhance well-being in deprived communities. And they're of different sorts. They actually do a cost-benefit analysis. How much do they cost? What are the benefits in terms of well-being, but other kinds of benefits? Are they scalable? You know, a lot of robust evaluations of these things. But what they do, for example, is they find that providing isolated older adults with opportunities to volunteer or, you know, to participate in the arts or to otherwise collectively get together has a very large effect on well-being in declining communities. People who used to go to work and they don't anymore, they sit alone at home. That's terrible for your well-being, right? So they find that providing opportunities to spend more time outdoors or to commute on buses and on bikes rather than alone in cars, it's very, you know, simple things that don't cost much make a big difference to well-being and they enhance the other parts of people's lives that matter a lot and social isolation is a huge factor going back to kind of the start of what we were talking about prime age males out of the labor force and the declining manufacturing towns in the midwest and the the sort of poor health a lot of it has to do with losing not just an identity and a narrative of life, but a, a way of convening. If you used to have a stable job and a stable family at home, and all of a sudden those are gone, and you live in a place that doesn't provide a lot of other alternatives for socializing collective activities, social isolation is a very big part of the negative drivers of this health and political crisis. That was Carol Graham, discussing her research report, Men Without Work, Why Are They So Unhappy in the U.S. Compared to Other Places, which she published with Sergio Pinto on February 12, 2019, through the Brookings Institution. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org E49, along with bonus audio and other materials that we discussed during the episode. If you enjoy Parsing Science, consider becoming a patron for as little as a dollar a month. And as a sign of our thanks, you'll get access to hours of unreleased audio from all of our episodes so far, as well as the same for all of our future ones. You'll help us continue to bring you the unpublished stories of researchers from around the globe, while supporting what we hope is one of your favorite science shows. If you're interested in learning more, head to parsingscience.org support for more information. Next time, in episode 50 of Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Wataru Toyokawa from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He'll talk with us about how observing and imitating others in crowds can at times enhance collective wisdom, though at other times it can lead to collective madness. The human case or other like social animal, we haven't evolved to optimize group decision-making, unfortunately. So we sometimes behave in optimizing their own single individual decision performance, but that doesn't necessarily improve the group decision performance. We hope that you'll join us again. 